Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, how you doing? I'm doing quite all right, Joe. How are you? This is one of our favorite episodes. I'm doing great. This is the Sex Question Palooza 3. Yay. I love our Sex Question Paloozas. We get to answer so many questions. Yeah, and and, and, you know, we have so many ways to communicate with us. Obviously, we have that fancy new website, scienceofsexpodcast.com, where people are connecting with us. Mm -hmm. Also, via all our social media accounts, we now have an Instagram account. We have an Instagram account, so you can follow us on Instagram at scienceofsexpodcast. And you see all pretty pictures of me and there's mm-hmm. some of uh, of Jana in there. Uh-huh. Every now and then, maybe, <laughs> maybe. But yeah, so uh, we mentioned it because we, we pretty much take questions from anywhere. So via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Email. Uh, email, our website. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try to get as many questions as possible done in the next hour or so. We're Doc- not going to get to all of them because mm-hmm. we've gotten so many no. questions. I'm pretty blown away. There's also another way that I've been answering and can continue to answer questions, and that's on my YouTube channel. Oh, okay. So some of these questions you might uh, see your answer, cool. not just hear your awesome. answer. How can I get on that YouTube channel? I've not been on that. I've, you've not invited me on to be no, part of that. No, because no? you don't deserve to be there. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> All right. How about, and how about some of those like <laughs> those sex science socials? Never invited either to- Yeah, you're always invited to those. Oh, okay. And in fact, we just had one, but you did not show up. I was there. You didn't right, see me. I was in the back right. waving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we have an, another one coming up, but okay. in a month, because we, we only do them once a month. All right. What's the date so on that? So the date is, you, you ready for this? Okay, I'm opening my calendar. October 18th. October 18th. It's a Thursday, just oh. like every other sex and social. Yeah. What do you have? I have a bar mitzvah that day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. My, my cousin Jimmy's uh-huh. son's having a bar mitzvah. Right. So uh, anyway. So all right. So let's not waste any time. So we make the note October, uh, October 18th. 18th. And I... Yeah. Yeah. also have the topic, which I think is relevant for some of the, the questions that we have today, and that it's on debunking sex myths that oh. ruin lives. I don't know if we talked about this, but I did a couple of talks at Burning Man, and one of them was debunking sex myths, and there was a lot of interest, there was a lot of conversations back and forth, oh. and so I thought I would do it again. So this is like and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster? What we yeah, but the sex versions of them. Oh, the sex yes, the ones right. with the big penises. All right, great. All right, so let's get to Sex Question Palooza 3. Now, the first question, Dr. Jana, what do you think of dadit relationships? Dadit? D-A-D-T. <laughs> D-A-D-T. Do you know what that stands for? It's not dad it? It's definitely not dad it. <laughs> what is that? That refers to don't ask, don't tell. Oh. Remember we had dad it policies in oh, the, the military. military. Sure. Yeah, exactly. That I've did not ring heard, a bell. I've never no, heard anyone D-A-D-T. say the word dad it. Well, no, nobody has <laughs> <laughs> pronounced it dad it. <laughs> so D-A-D-T is don't, don't ask, ask, don't tell. Okay, cool. So what do you think of, oh, take two. What, <laughs> what do you think of don't ask, don't tell relationships? Joe, what do you think of don't ask, don't tell? Uh, I'll tell you what I think, but I oh think this boy. is something that uh, you can definitely have an opinion. So yeah. can you can you think of what a don't ask, don't tell relationship would be? Yes. Defi- define that for us. Okay, boy, <laughs> put a lot of pressure on me out of the box here, Doctor <laughs> Jana. So I I would assume in in most cases that we're, we're that this is in in it's an open relationship, and the, each member of the of the couple can do their own thing, but do not need to report back with their sig other. Right. So I nailed yeah. it. Oh, good. Yeah, you kind of ah, nailed it. Gold yeah. star, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and what do I think about that? I think as long as- Do you as, think that can work? Do you think it's- I think, you know, honestly, I know we've talked about open relationships many a time, but I think that's might be the best part of an open relationship that could work just because the oh. jealousy issue mm-hmm. never comes into play because 
the either person doesn't have to worry about is so and so with doing this? What kind of maneuvers are they working on? Mm-hmm. Are they you mm-hmm. know doing kinkier stuff or doing vanilla stuff? They don't have to worry about it. Don't ask, don't tell. Mm-hmm. No, uh, you know, right? But so don't ask, don't tell also means you don't necessarily know anything. So let's say you're at home and then your partner goes somewhere. Yeah. And usually you tell each other where you go and what right. you're doing and what are you going to say? I guess technically you are lying. You'll or you can mm. you can you keep it almost like vague and be like, "Hey, I'm going out for a couple hours." I mean, can you? I, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> it almost sounds like you, you you're not a fan of DADTs. So, uh, I think I think they can work if uh, they're done right. I think very often DADT is is difficult to do because of these logistical reasons. If you have a couple who lives together and they at some point agreed, okay, you know, we can see other people together, but we're not going to talk about that. And then how are you not going to talk about some of these things? And then if you haven't decided who are the people that you can or cannot. Uh, have as other partners if that someone is someone who's a friend of both of you and you end up seeing that person like that just becomes very complicated if if you're not supposed to tell anything so there are logistical issues around making a DADT relationship work and very often both to, to the people who are doing it and to the partners that they are maybe hooking up with or dating on the side it feels like it's lying like it's hiding so there's that element of how ethical is this really? Like, And very often, I think it's important, in order to do it right, it's important to then have a more in-depth conversation about, okay, but how are we going to do that? Let's talk about, okay, so you want to see other people, I want to see other people. Who are those people going to be? Are we going to involve friends or not? Are we going to do that when we're both in the same city and how are we going to negotiate? You know, how, yeah. Is it just okay to say I'm going to go out for a couple hours or not, right? But if you do that, then the other person is going to know so it's not quite DADT. So in hmm. my experience, the only way that DADT relationships can work on a kind of a long-term basis and successfully is if you combine that with uh, what is often known as the zip code rule or a version of that, which is you only see other people when you're not in the same city, when you're traveling or something uh, like that, and you keep it completely separate from your friend group or, you know, professional group or whatever, th- th- that those people are not, those other partners are not part of that. Oh, so to steal a term, it's almost like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind, kind of, of thing? Kind of. Interesting. Because otherwise it would be very difficult uh, to do, especially if you're living together. Now, if you're not living together and you're not one of those couples who see each other all the time and talk about where each, you know, each person is. Yeah all the time, then you can probably make that work. But I think you really have to take care to keep things very separate. And I think it's good to have a a, a little more than, oh, are we going to have an open relationship? Okay, let's not talk about it ever again, period, yeah. right? It would be good to specify what are some of those expectations that each of the people have and then not talk about it. So in, in other words, a DAT relationship could probably work better if you say it's a fuck buddy situation. Where mm-hmm. it's like it's more of like, mm-hmm. hey, what are you down? You, you up? Sure, you know, sure. <laughs> you know you what up? you doing? <laughs> Whatever it is, but <laughs> it, it helps. What's the state of your <laughs> important body I part? I up don't or know. Down. Up or down? But yeah, so in, in, in that yeah. scenario, it could work a little yeah. better, right? But I also think it can work as a long term relationship as long as it's sort of done navigated properly. But it can very often be difficult to navigate, and if you're trying to navigate it in these other ways, in in these other contexts, when people are living together and you end up lying. Yeah. Then it's more than just not telling 
your partner things. It's also lying about where you are and what you're doing and, and who, with, and you who you're with. And then you also, any of that, the, the other people that you're hooking up with are friends with your partner, then you're making them lie as well. Got it. So, all right. Yeah. Tricky. It's a tricky situation, but I think it can work just because it's DADT. I don't think it's inherently unethical or impossible to navigate. I, I just think it's it, it has it, it has its own unique set of challenges, just like you were saying, well, you don't have the jealousy, you don't have this, so it yeah. has its pros, but it also has its cons, just like any other poly relationship. Okay, so let's just, let's squeeze in one more open relationship question. We always have so many Yeah, let's ones. just do one yeah, more okay. and then we'll move on. So how can you overcome the stigma surrounding open relationships in order to be in one? Wow. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. There is stigma, and we know that there is stigma. But you know, the way you deal with stigma around other things as well, there are a couple of different strategies that you can take. One huge one is finding community. If you have community that is supportive, and whether that's in-person community, if you live in a big city like New York or San Francisco or LA, you know, you can certainly find people to connect with. Uh, personally and have friends in that but if not you can find online community luckily we live in the yeah. the day and era of, of the internet so there is an online uh, world out there that can become a community so as long as you you have social support from somebody or some people that has a very very powerful effect on balancing out some of the stigma that you might be receiving from other people another thing is to to some extent to control who you come out about these things too you know yeah. if you have a boss or or you work in a company where that would be <laughs> grounds for losing your job yeah. obviously you kind of have to be discreet to some extent but to whatever extent you can create a life for yourself that allows you to be surrounded by people who are not judgmental mm -hmm. around that and then it just helps to build a bit of a thick skin around it <laughs> so these are all different strategies and different different things will work for different people to different extent uh, if you can educate people educate be a good role model be you know let people know about about this lifestyle and make them feel comfortable with what it is and, and, and how it is and make them feel like, oh, this is not something that only weirdos do yeah. or crazy people uh, do or, you know, Mormons in Utah do or something like that. That uh, the, the more you normalize that for people, the, the better it is because we know from research on all sorts of stigmatized groups is that as soon as people have a personal experience, like they know they have a friend or a relative or mm. somebody close to them who is, let's say, gay or some other stigmatized group, they all of a sudden start thinking about that a little more positively. So this is the same thing with yeah, being so, poly. It's so funny that when you were going through all that, it almost had like a deja vu. If you're probably over 35, near 40, you don't have to, you're in, in this generation where homosexuality and even in major cities, there was a stigma yeah, to yeah, it. And it's amazing how much time, you know, has, has, has gone by and stuff has changed. It could be the same thing with open relationships where now it's sort of like, as you know, it's more in the forefront. So it's probably gonna take a little time before some of the stigma mm -hmm. wears off, even in huge yeah. cities, which oh, yeah. is, yeah. you know, there's judgy people, judgy assholes <laughs> everywhere, no matter what. There where. are, and this is relatively new and we've had this notion of monogamy as being the only form of relationships sure. that work. So of course it's gonna take time. But if we all work towards these using all of these different strategies, then eventually we'll get there. And it is getting better. It absolutely is getting better. Cool. All right. Our next question. Okay, How enough of poly stuff. No, we're uh, no poly free. Poly. <laughs> as much as we, we love we love chatting about poly on the show, but you know, we will move on now in our sex question Palooza. Up next, how do extreme religious beliefs affect sexual development in terms of psychological impact? Could it also have a physiological impact? Mm. 
Yes, there is fair amount of research on how religion, but both growing up religious and being religious as an adult influences some of these aspects of sexuality. And there's no doubt that it does. <laughs> uh, there, on average, people who are or who grew up more religious are much more likely to be kind of more conservative in their sexual values, uh, what they consider a acceptable or appropriate yeah. they're much much more likely to delay sexual first sexual experiences whether intercourse or other types of experiences they're much more likely to wait until marriage because many of the sort of the standard religions that especially the ones that we see in in the US are very very adamant about waiting uh, for sex until marriage so they are so they're you know if you grow up with a certain set of attitudes and beliefs around you, then it, it's very likely that you're going to incorporate a lot of those values and attitudes. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, you're not going to have the desires that biologically, to some extent, you were you were predisposed to have. And people come uh, on, on a spectrum as, as far as the, those desires go. So if you're, let's say, someone who doesn't want a lot of sex or doesn't have a, a very high need for sexual novelty, like different partners or kind of... Non or or uh, heterosexual sexual orientation. So if you're somebody who kind of conforms in terms of your biological predisposition, you're compatible hmm. with those more conservative attitudes, religious attitudes and values. Then you're probably going to have a easier time accepting and and building a life for yourself that can incorporate those kinds of values. However, on the other hand, if you're someone who's on the other end of the spectrum, whose biological needs and drives are very different from what their society and, and the culture religion, and yeah. religion specifically is telling them they should be doing, that's when conflicts arise because you have this lack of authenticity within you. You have these different forces pulling you in different directions. And what very often happens is guilt and shame. Hmm. And there is much higher sexual guilt and sexual shame uh, around uh, among religious people and people who grew up religious compared to people who didn't grow up religious. And uh, another thing, you know, they're much sort of less likely to be okay with a lot of different things like masturbation and pornography and casual sex and premarital sex, like infidelity, like all of those things, they're much less likely to be accepting of. Mm. And when they do them, because they do do them, they do them at sli slightly lower rates, many of these, okay. not. Not everything, and there are some <laughs> indications that some you know so. some people jump into the part of the water pretty quick. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but there's definitely indication that when they do do them, they're much more likely to feel bad about oh, doing okay. these things. Now, it's interesting that the question is like, could it have some physiological impact? And that ties into another question by a completely different person that we had asking if we could talk about vaginismus. Do you know what vaginismus is? Is that the sandwich that Australians eat? <laughs> What is that? Vegemite? Is it Vegemite? Vegemite? Oh my God. <laughs> no, I have no Vegemite idea. Vegemite causes vag vaginismus. No, what is vaginismus? <laughs> vaginismus is a, is a condition, I guess, uh, where the, the vaginal muscles, when something tries to penetrate them, they the, penetrate the vagina, the vaginal muscles squeeze so tight, basically spasm. So that and and completely close up, so that you know the penis or finger or toy or whatever it is that is trying to go in there just cannot go. No way. It's, it's so it's clenching so tight that nothing can come through. And if you try to push it, and you know if you try to kind of force it, it it's painful. And so a lot, a lot of the oh. time, this is this is related with pain during intercourse, and it's because the the vaginal muscles are just spasming so tight, saying, "I don't want this inside me. Get it out. Get it out. Get it out." 
Wow. It's, yeah. so, it's so funny when you said that because I, I immediately jumped to the part where once you put a penis in, it got stuck. That's not what happens mm. in this one. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you spill out your coffee. So, <laughs> no, so, no, 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 so, uh, no. The penis can't even get in. So is it like thing. it's a psychological thing? It seems like it is. Okay. And we don't actually have a very clear answer to the why uh, question, but it does seem like it's psychological because very often if a, if a woman presents for painful intercourse or vaginismus, you would, the first thing that you would do, you would try to exclude any sort of biological, physical, medical reasons for it. Okay. And very often there aren't any. And then what, what is left is that this is some sort of anxiety. So they want to have sex though. Yeah, yeah, It's not yeah, like they're yeah. being forced mm-hmm. or anything like that or being No, coerced. no, no. This no, is no. just like, it's, it's almost a... I'm just it's with their think- boyfriends and husbands and people yeah. that they want to have sex with. They hmm. want to make babies and, you know, all of these things. Yeah. And they just can't because as soon as something touches the opening of the vagina, it just clenches, right? And wow. nothing, nothing nothing, can come through. Or if it does, it's very, very painful, right? So the, the best explanation that we have is that it's some level of anxiety or panic attack around having something inside. And that can be a result maybe of some sexual trauma that happened earlier in life for kind of obvious reasons, sure, sure. right? But it does seem like it's higher among people who are religious because, uh, again, there's so much anxiety. There's actually a really good article a few years ago that, that came out. I can't, I can't think of, of where that was, but of this, of this woman kind of talking about how re- my religion has been telling me that sex is a bad thing. Sex is bad, 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 bad for so many years of my life, ever since I understood what sex, what was. sex potentially <laughs> yeah. might be. I've been told that this is something bad. And then all of a sudden, when I turned, whatever, she turned 25 or four or three, mm. whenever she got married, she got married. And then all of a sudden, now sex is supposed to be amazing yeah. because it's, it's being done with this with this partner to that co- is okay. To create and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but all of a sudden, like, you're supposed to, this is something that you're supposed to now be enjoying. Hmm. And she was like, well, wait, that doesn't, ha- how am I supposed to make that switch? How wow. is it all of a sudden this terrible thing now going to become a beautiful thing that I enjoy? And so it, it's not that hard to understand how you could have this physio- this physiological reaction that is being caused by anxiety and fear and and all that guilt that you have around those body parts down there that you've never really been allowed to touch yeah. or see or interact with in a pleasurable way. And uh, yeah, so it absolutely... Re- very strict religious upbringing that's very sex negative in terms of you know what your body is and can do and and what you can do with it sexually it can have physiological impact for sure wow it's so funny when you were describing that it made me i know you're not a sports fan dr jana but there's a thing in sports called the yips and these athletes I get have it no idea what that and is. basically what it means is you're a professional athlete or you're a great athlete and you're able to do something over and over again and then one day you just can't do it anymore. Like, for example, oh. uh, someone hits a ground ball to the second baseman, the second baseman can't even throw it to first base. They'll throw it wildly just because it's gotten into their head where they just can't get over this sort of anxiety. And sort of this is like sort of the sexual yips where your body <laughs> is able, you, your body f- can physically do it, but for some reason you're just blocking it with your brain. Yeah, so, there you go. That's a sexual yip. <laughs> now, I should note that vaginismus existed as a diagnosable condition up until the most recent changes in the DSM-5, which uh, we, we have talked yeah. about. Uh, this It's the Bible, the psychiatric sure. Bible, whatever. And they changed, they basically combined vaginismus and dyspareunia, which is pain, pain during intercourse. They kind of combined them in 
into one disorder. Why? Because it seems like two different things. Well, they're they're they overlap oh, so so often, and it. one could be kind of you know yeah. There's there's so much overlap, and uh, very often women present with both or or whatever. They decided to combine it all into one. So these days, that's not no longer kind of a, a diagnosable wow. condition, but you'll still see it discussed and and. Uh, treated as a separate thing sometimes so cool and without getting too much into it so is that something you'd have to go see a therapist about right yes yes okay. exactly so if you're experiencing thanks for yeah. mentioning that That's yes what I'm here if for, you're Dr. John. well if you're experiencing any kind of pain with intercourse it's a good idea you know intercourse should not be painful i mean yeah. you can try the basic things like use lube right and very often you have the therapist uh, friends and they say oh my god the number of clients who have been helped <laughs> who have helped just by suggesting yeah. that they should use lube is tremendous yeah. but va- vaginismus probably couldn't be helped by it, no right? no vaginismus yeah. usually takes a longer process of uh, usually the way you I mean you work on the psychological issues around lowering the anxiety the guilt the shame uh, the trauma dealing yeah. with the trauma that may have caused that if if it was caused by some trauma and then also having a, a like like a physical exercise, which is these like very progressively bigger and bigger, but they start really small, like little um, dildos, but they start really, really tiny. Like wow. super, super uh, like, thin and tiny, uh, thinner than a, than a pinky. Wow. That, you know, to kind of progressively work up to something that I've is I've never seen those in sex stores, the tiny dildos. <laughs> <laughs> they usually come with a little larger. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, larger yes. You don't buy them. Uh, you know, it's not your the, typical yes. sex, sex store um, purchase. Item. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Cool. So our next question, Dr. Jana. I was hoping to get a definitive answer to a question I've been wondering about for a while. More now while I'm under the dominance of a wonderful woman. Mm-hmm. Is, sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is gooning <laughs> at all bad for my testicles? Now, thankfully, he added a, a little more of a description. You know what gooning is? No, until I re- kept reading this I'd never this question. heard that term either. So he calls gooning edging for hours, in my case, four plus hours every day without orgasming for weeks. So basically, gooning is edging. Uh, the verge yes, of climaxing. That, that, that would be my understanding based on this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Jana, is gooning or slash edging bad for you? Yeah, I, I wish I had a more definitive answer to to, to this the listener, to the, to the gooning. It, it, it doesn't seem, I mean, it, there's actually not a lot of research on this. So, lately, there has been kind of a big push by some people. I mean, it's a small minority of people, Mm -hmm. of men, but there has been a push and I've actually been meeting them. I don't know why I keep meeting them and running into them at festivals in in particular. (laughs) There's Dr. Jana. She wants to talk about gooning with me. (laughs) No, no, not necessarily gooning, but um, men who intentionally try not to orgasm for extended periods of time, they don't necessarily try not to have sex or or masturbate, but they don't orgasm. Hmm. And I've been hearing, again, as anecdotal evidence you know, yeah. goes, I've been hearing from them that they're doing it because it kind of helps them preserve some energy and they feel more invigorated that way that when they come, when they come kind of on a regular basis, on a daily basis, yeah. they feel a little more lethargic and you know, not as motivated to get all their stuff done, like yeah. other stuff in life that this kind of I keeps can't do the laundry motivated. if I climax it, basically. <laughs> that what it is? It kind of. I'm just less, in, <laughs> less interested in doing laundry or doing, or I don't know, doing other things in life, yeah. sexual or non-sexual. Does so, this have anything go, roll, go into that tantra world where the, mm-hmm, the guys mm-hmm. Yeah, I think out? many, many of ideas or practices are intertwined with some tantric practices and some of the, many of these guys do come to this 
practice of not coming for extended periods of time through some some form uh, or shape of tantra. As I said, uh, not a lot of research evidence to support or debunk this. It hmm. may be true. I. I actually don't know. I would love to see some evidence on this. So will someone please do some research <laughs> on this? <laughs> on kind of the psychological aspect. Now, of course, you can't really do... This is one of those things where you can't do experiments with. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you can't do it... You, you kind of need blind experiments because if somebody is convinced that not coming has this positive effect, the placebo effect itself is going to have a positive effect. Right. Right. And you can't trick people. Like the ideal, <laughs> the ideal test yeah. of this would be to get a group of guys yeah. who are coming on a regular basis on a daily or sure. every couple of days basis and then randomly assign half of them <laughs> to... <laughs> to have sex and then have to go to, to have sex yeah. and come yeah. and the other group to have sex and not come. But you have to, you have to trick the not coming group into thinking that they're coming. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah that, you, and that. you can't do that. No. You just can't do that. So, so you don't think you you don't think I mean without getting you know yeah. digging down going to the Kinsey Institute and doing some sort of <laughs> research, you don't think that it's any irreparable harm here. Well, no. So so one thing is, you know, having having sex or masturbating for for some period of time every day without coming for say 4 uh, weeks or 8 weeks or or whatever. Uh, and and a s- slightly separate question is how long you're edging for. Right? Are you doing this, you know, half an hour a day? Or are you doing this four hours a day? In this hey. case, it seems like it's a it's a lot of four time. hours plus. Yeah. So there are a couple of things that might be going on that are somewhat uh, potentially, you know, to to think about. One, so he says for the testicles, I don't think it's problematic for the testicles necessarily. However, there is some evidence that um, the that that the ejaculate that comes spe- specifically from the prostate, that is so. You know, the semen, mm. all the semen that comes out when, when uh, people ejaculate, that's only 1% sperm, the stuff that will <laughs> fertilize yeah, potentially an egg. An egg. Yep. The rest is uh, prostate fluid, and then, and then uh, a lot of it is, uh, comes from the seminal vesicles, that fluid. And so it, there's evidence to suggest that um, not kind of clearing out the prostate on a somewhat regular basis, maybe every two to three weeks, is, is linked to higher risk of prostate cancer. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So there is that. Uh, I have not seen any evidence that something will go wrong with the testicles in any way, <laughs> right. shape, or form. So some people have gone around this by milking the prostate without the rest of the ejaculate coming out. So you can, spe- you know, if if you know how to do that, yeah. you can kind of stimulate the prostate only, and then you can have an ejaculate that comes out that doesn't have sperm and I'm, I'm not sure about the seminal vesicle stuff but uh, whether the, I, I think that doesn't come out yeah. the, the only thing that comes out is the prostate fluid and so that that way you avoid this potential cancer risk um, without still without coming yeah do you think there's an addictive issue as well too? the fact that he's edging for four hours like I don't have four hours a day to do anything. Like I could not. I can't binge watch more than two or three episodes. Is it bad that this is so taking a, so much yeah. time? So that's the whole other issue. Is okay. Yeah, it might not be bad for your testicles, but is this good for your life in general? Yeah. Like that's yeah. I mean, do you really want to be spending four hours of your day every day? Gooning, having having sex, and who knows, or yeah. or masturbating. However, you it is that you are uh, edging because you yeah. might be edging through masturbation, or you might be edging in the context sex. of partner yep. partnered sex. I mean, hey, if 
if you think that's good for you and and for your life and you don't feel like you're neglecting other things or you have uh, you know other things that you're not getting to do that you would like to do hey to each their own but i mean the addictive question that's a whole other yeah, yeah, you know yeah. question of i think anything that feels good people can overdo and this is one of those things uh, now another physiologically uh, relevant issue with with edging for a long period of time in particular has to do with uh, erectile difficulties that some men will will report so very often when men are edging for something like 4 hours a day usually by watching porn or or masturbating but usually by watching porn and then if they try to have sex with a human being later that day for example yeah. they are reporting that they either can't get an erection or can't sustain an erection or it's not very hard mm. even like it's half erection kind yeah. of thing and and that is related to how long you edge for uh, whether whether you come at the end or not bringing yourself or keeping yourself at the brink of an orgasm it's it's exhausting the the system yeah. to some extent and so you just have less of that kind of um, excitement and energy and arousal available that same day. You take a break from that for <laughs> for for a yeah. day or two, and or you know a week or so, depending on how long. Because men have different refractory periods, right? After you come, some men can get it up right away, yeah. and some men need a twenty-four hour period before they can get it up again. Sure, and that changes with age, differs from person to person at the same age, and so depending on that, uh, you might want to take a break so those are the, the the potential risks that we do know of the prostate cancer increase with uh, not ejaculating or not emptying the prostate yep. and a potential ed issues with long-term edging all right let's stick in that uh let's stay in that area uh dr jana <laughs> hi i have a serious problem and i need expert help and i think john this is where you step in because i'm not the expert i'm uh, not the expert i know okay. i need to know if non-surgical penis enlargement is possible and how do I go about it? <sighs> I've run into many scams, and I want to avoid advice from the public. I'm 28 years old. So, non-surgical penis enlargements, Dr. Jana. Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. I'm always so conflicted when I get this question. You get this a lot? Yeah. yeah wow. I do get this a lot. Okay. I think there are a fair number of men. In fact, research shows that among straight men, something like... Maybe 20, 30% of them are not entirely satisfied with the size of their penis, maybe even higher, depending on the sample. I don't think we have that information in a nationally representative sample, but in some smaller, more convenient samples, somewhere between 20 and like 45% of wow. them say that they're not, like they wish they were a little bigger. Huh. Now, most of them are not you know, upset by that or right. distressed by that to the level of wanting to a surgery. Surg yeah. Yeah, surgery or yeah. something else, but there is this anxiety around the size of the penis. Sure. And especially if you're watching a lot of porn and seeing all those monster dicks in porn and you're comparing your average size penis to that, you think, oh my God, my, I have a micro penis. Right. <laughs> right? So I, I do run into that question a lot. And I'm always very conflicted because the majority, and this is, this is interesting too, the majority of men who present who will come to a sex therapist or a urologist or something, you know, some, some kind of doctor asking uh, for, for penis enlargement, they're within the average range. They're not like the micro penis guys. They're not two standard deviations or three standard deviations below the mean in terms of their size. They're kind of within average, huh. but they're just so convinced it's in their head. that their penises are small and Part inadequate yeah. and that they can't, <laughs> they, they, they can't satisfy a woman uh, with, with that size. So they develop this 
penile dysmorphia. Basically, it's a right. body dysmorphic disorder where, you know, just like many people who are, say, anorexic, you know, they see themselves in the mirror and they see someone who's fat. Right. Even though they're skinnier than everybody else, mm. they still see themselves as too big. And so this is kind of a, a same thing, only if focused on a on one specific body part. So I don't know. So is there particular... anything? Can we do anything <laughs> for this guy? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would say the best thing to do is to come to terms with whatever size he has. Own it. Own it. And then get better at using it. Get better at using your tongue and your hands and your sex toy arsenal that is available out there. Right. And there's so many women who are not particularly interested in having a big penis. In fact, many women who who don't want uh, anything on the larger end, they want something on the smaller end of things because penetrative sex is either not super pleasurable or they have shallow and and small uh, tight vaginas and it hurts and because they're, yeah. They can't handle it. They can't handle it, whatever. So there are enough partners out there who are going to be perfectly happy with either a smaller penis or uh, they want other things more. They want oral and, and all of these other things. Plus, I mean, anal sex is much easier to do when you have a smaller penis. So if, if you're right. into anal, you have a much greater uh, set of options for, for partners who would want to do that with you uh, as opposed to you know being someone with a big dick. So, now, you, so all that yeah, said... Come on, help, help this guy out <laughs> Sorry. here. Sorry. I know you, you got the mental part down, the fact that maybe he's just he just needs to own it and all that stuff. But yeah. is, there, is there an actual applicable... Wave of him to do something without non-surgery ways. <laughs> Go ahead. You can say no. Can I answer like that? Can, can that be my answer? Okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, no. There is. So uh, apparently there is. So the the only non-surgical thing that I've heard that works, so no creams or anything like that, that's all scam. You mean all those pop-ups that come on? <laughs> yeah, all those pop-ups. <laughs> no. There, certainly surgical en- enlargement can work, both in terms of extending at the penis and making it fatter. Okay. You can uh, insert silicone or, or other- But that's you know, surgical. But that's all surgical, right? Okay. Uh, non-surgical, the only thing that apparently kind of sort of works is putting weights, uh, but you have to do that very meticulously and day after day, you kind of have to do this this training and you might gain, I don't know, a quarter inch or something like that. Oh boy. Uh, losing weight is another great way, uh, especially like abdomen, abdominal yeah. area weight is another thing because uh, the, good, the good news is that about a third of the erectile tissue is actually inside the body. Oh. And if you have a lot of abdominal uh, fat, or, then it, it will cover mm. you know, some of that erectile tissue. So you can, uh, in quotation marks, enlarge your penis by losing weight if you're overweight. Interesting. So it's funny because it's almost <laughs> like the, it's you're advising him to get a six-pack abs and then he should be... His, his, well, yeah. His, I mean, <laughs> with the six-pack abs, yeah. All right. I know what you're already thinking. No, Dr. Jana. <laughs> no? We're not trying to hook you no. up with anybody. <laughs> no? Wait. wait can, we can't have sex with our listeners? I mean, just not not not, not the ones that okay. ask questions. Wait. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> if they ask questions, we can't have sex with them? No. No. No, look. I don't like this rule. Okay. You just... Came up with this rule just on the spot, just it, now. And it's completely. I, I I don't agree. All right, can we move on because we need to get to some more questions? <laughs> okay. Uh, what are evolutionary and physiological explanations for why we enjoy anal, top and bottom? Did Graffenberg study this in men? Don't know who this Graffenberg fella is, Doctor Jana. I do not. Really? No. You can't. You can't think of the Star okay. Police Academy? No. No. Oh, that was Gutenberg. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Come on. The G-spot? The G-spot. Oh, See, I knew you it. knew. Oh, all right. Got it. All right. So this is the guy who found the G-spot. 
Sort of, yes. Okay. I mean, we're not going to go into the, the whole history of that, Got but it. yes, he's he's the first to kind of describe it and and uh, popular. Well, kind of got forgotten for a bit and then got rediscovered by by more modern scientists. Okay. But yes, yeah, so Grafenberg found this sort of G spot in in women. Okay, and we often say that for men, you know, their G spot is the prostate. Oh, okay. You haven't heard of that? I've heard that, yeah, got it. it. Right, so that's why this this person, this listener, is is asking about the whole Grafenberg thing. So, okay, so Grafenberg did not study this in men. We're just kind of using the same concept or idea around something that is not the penis that might be very, very pleasurable and a source of uh, pleasure and orgasms for men. So why evolutionarily, there's an evolutionary explanation for why we, we enjoy anal, I I don't I don't know. I don't think there is a particular evolutionary reason. I don't think that evolution selected for it. I think the fact that we have nerve endings in that area mm-hmm. when it comes to receptive, you yeah. know, why we enjoy receptive anal, there are a lot of nerve endings in that area and I think that is just a byproduct of other adaptations that were necessary, the other reasons why there are nerve endings there that can be made to feel good. Uh, and then of course you have the proximity to all of these other potentially pleasurable organs in men, the prostate, which when stimulated can be highly, uh, highly pleasurable f- for, for men. And then for women, you can get and you can kind of touch and, and, and stimulate uh, all of the erectile tissue that is the internal portion of the clitoris and all that even you know, when you're going through the, f- through the anus. So both the anus itself has nerve endings and that whole area has nerve endings and erectile uh, tissue and, and all that that gets stimulated and that feels good. And I, I don't think there's an evolutionary reason in the sense that it was an adaptation. There was no okay. reproductively valuable right. thing to enjoying <laughs> anal okay. sex, but those those nerve endings just ended up there. And um, yeah, but physiologically speaking, that's, that, that's the physiological explanation that, is that you have all these nerve endings that when stimulated can feel good for the receptive partner. Now for the insertive partner, why do you think that's hot? Why do some people oh. p- particularly find... Okay, because it's the, tighter? Okay, so yeah, it could be because it's tighter, absolutely. Okay. And um, Power? It could be about power, yes, okay. yes. What else could it be like about? <laughs> what am I missing? I don't know. You, oh, okay, you, I, that's the two I could think of. Th- yeah. Those are your two. I think there's also the taboo aspect of it. Ooh, okay. Uh, very often we're kind of drawn to that. Mm-hmm. There's the dirtiness aspect of it, even mm-hmm. though... We have this kind of ambivalent relationship with dirty, right? Dirty is at the same time something that you really don't want because it's dirty, but right. then at the same time you kind of use it in this kind of sexy way, like yeah. you know. So there's a there's a little back and forth uh, with the with that, and I think it, it, you can sexualize that. Mm. So yeah, yeah. Oh, there's okay. a lot of psychological reasons for for why that's the case, and physiologically speaking, you're inserting a penis in a hole, yeah, and and that feels good, mm-hmm. uh, whether whatever that hole may be, mm-hmm. and this hole may be particularly tight compared to say the vaginal hole or um, a mouth or something like that. So that can add. Pleasure. To the pleasure. All right. Too. So yeah. we have t- a couple. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions, and one of them has to do with what we're just okay. discussing. How safe is Speaking anal play <laughs> when considering STIs? Speaking of anal play, yeah. So okay. anal and STIs. Well, of all of the things that people do sexually, aside from some blood play, where you directly kind of get. We don't have time to get but, into blood play, but, Dr. John. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's keep it to the basics. Right. Of the basics, yeah. or more or less the basics, of the more commonly engaged in sex acts, anal sex is the most risky mm-hmm. when it comes to STIs. And why is that? And that is because 
the anus, first of all, doesn't lubricate on its own. So the chances of tears happening, of these micro tears and macro tears, are much higher than with the with the vaginal uh, with the vaginal opening, uh, because it, also because it's so one because it's tighter mm-hmm. as we were saying, yeah. two because it doesn't provide its own lubrication. So if there's more friction, especially if you're not using a lube uh, to help with that. If you kind of go too fast or too too rough, it's much more easy uh, for that skin to break, for that mucos um, to break. And there also might be some greater recept- receptivity of the of the cells, uh, the anal the anal mucosa itself compared to the vaginal mucosa. But I'm not entirely sure okay. about that. But yeah, there's plenty of reasons why that's the case. So so the phrasing of the question is a little weird. But how safe is anal play? You're saying it's more dangerous. It's riskier, riskier, yes. So you can get all of the things that you can get, all of the STIs yeah. you can get, chlamydia, gonorrhea, herpes, syphilis, HIV, you know, you name, name it. it. It's going to be much easier to transmit that way than with vaginal sex and much, much, much more risky than uh, oral sex for many of these things. But, you know, you you can lower that risk by using condoms, yep. <laughs> by using lube. Mm-hmm. So lube is actually a safer sex strategy in a way, because it reduces friction, especially for, I mean, for, for anyone, anyone yeah. for vaginal uh, very often as well, especially if you're using condoms and condoms can dry out mm-hmm. even the vaginas that do provide their yeah. own their own uh, lubrication to some extent. But certainly for, for anuses, mm-hmm. uh, lube is a, is a very important uh, risk reduction. To prevent reduction. tears, right? Yeah, yeah, strategy. Cool. So yeah, with, with lube and with condoms, you, know, you can lower your risk. It's not going to be zero. Yeah, It's still Never not going to be zero, yeah. but... And also making sure that those condoms fit right, that you know they're not too big, they're not too small. We had an entire episode where we talked about condom errors and yeah. how not to make them and what are some of the most common ones. So, so yeah, using condoms, using them properly, mm-hmm. and then using um, lube and um, yeah. All right, Dr. Jana, we are running out of time, but we'll try to squeeze in a little bit. You know, I actually got this one tweet that I wanted to read to you, but maybe okay. you may want to shoot it down. So it's one of okay. our fans on Twitter. It says... I know you don't like to get too personal, but have you ever discussed your ink? Tattoos are sexy to many people. Why? Oh, <laughs> someone has someone actually tweeted about your ink, which you are you know covered up pretty good, and now you're blushing a little bit. But what what, what is it about uh, your ink? And do you want to ex- talk about some of your ink? Can you can you go into it a little bit or no? I mean, I can certainly. Yeah, this just, is just this, describe this make, my ink and yeah. tell people about my tattoos. But uh, that's that's kind of a longer conversation, maybe. Maybe we can. Well, how mm-hmm. about tattoos are sexy to many people? Why? Why do you think that is? I think there are a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, you can you can think of that as an art piece on somebody's body that embellishes it, right? That makes it just like an uh, just like a piece of clothing can yeah. be sexy if it accentuates certain aspects of that body or whatever. You can kind of think of a tattoo in the same way. Another reason why I think they're sexy is because we often ascribe greater sexual interest or openness or, or liberal kind of sexual behavior to the people who have tattoos versus people who don't have tattoos. There's research showing mm. that, yeah, that people will perceive, especially women, and I think also men too, yeah. who have tattoos as more likely to want to have sex or have casual sex or have more partners or something like that than the same person who doesn't have a tattoo. That's funny. Yeah. And I think that comes from, you know, those earlier days well, nowadays, not so much, even the, still to some extent. Now it depends on how much of your body may be covered. But back in the day when very few people had tattoos, probably the most kind of adventurous folks in any 
aspect, including you know, sexual aspect, were the ones likely to kind of go outside that norm and get uh, a tattoo. They were the norm breakers, you know, the the wild yeah. kind of uh, kids or, or people. Yeah. And part of the, that wildness, maybe also sexual kind of exploration and curiosity. And, and so, uh, but nowadays when I think something like 50% or so of the, the U.S. population has at least one tattoo, yeah. I don't know to what extent that Some of that exoticness holds. is worn off, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's funny. You know what I find uh, people who are tattoos because as you know Dr. Jean I have none I find it that people who get uh, ink are brave you know because mm. to me I it's hard for me to pick out like an iPhone case like <laughs> the idea of having to pick a tattoo that's going to be permanent on your body that's bold and ballsy of someone to say like this is what I want on my body I think mm. there's just something there that there's like a little yeah absolutely like little... yeah I think uh, th- that's a whole other element of yeah. that obviously commitment to and kind of being certain that you're not going to change your mind about that mm-hmm. that ah. particular issue yeah. yeah I think one more reason is oh. they often are the tattoos are often in areas of the body that are kind of sexual and so you know or or that you need to get somewhat nude. Or, you know, to in order to see them or fully see them. And so they kind of invite this interaction with the body oh, okay. in a way that, you know, if not having it wouldn't invite. And they invite you to touch or ask or kind of get close and stare. And so yeah. I think, yeah, I think they, they get at sexuality in different ways. Okay, yeah. well, that's good. Well, see, Dr. Andy, I'm sorry to lay that on you right away like that. That just tweet just came in from Great. one of our fans, Mick Jacobs on Twitter. So Thanks, there Mick you go. Jacobs. But I think Mick is uh, probably expecting a further explanation about your tattoos. We won't be able to get to those now. <laughs> There's actually a video, a YouTube. It's on YouTube. It's a video that a friend of mine, Dave Ratzlow, did a, a, a year ago. So he doesn't have my most recent piece, but it has all of the other ones, and it has the stories of them. And you can see me not naked, but you know, very skimpily. Oh God, I can't see that. Oh, dressed. I can't imagine. You're no, no, like no. My it's, sister. It's, I can't imagine it, you naked. You're like my I'm sister. not naked. All I'm right. not naked. Okay. All I'm right. Not Just naked. checking. Cover my eyes. I, you're like my little sister. I'm, I can't imagine I'm, I'm you. I'm less naked than I would be at a beach. Okay. Okay. So, you know. So Google they, that. So yes, Mick Google Jacobs, that. Google that. So, all right, Dr. John, one more question if you're able to do it, okay? Oh, God, killing me here. Okay. How can I go from dating kinky people to vanilla people? I guess you could take that many different ways, Dr. Jana, but... Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what they're getting at here. So is it that you're dating kinky people for a, for a long time and then your preferences changed and then decided you don't want to do kink anymore and you want to, uh, you, you now want to kind of have a vanilla relationship? Is it because you somehow maybe exhausted your kinky pool, you want to expand <laughs> your, your pool of eligibles uh, yeah. elsewhere, but you still want to include or bring in an element of kink so i'm not exactly sure but because preferences can change you can sometimes be like okay i was doing this and now i'm no longer interested in doing it as much Uh, but i think probably it has more to do with someone who wants to still have have an element of kink in their relationship but they are getting at that by (laughs) sort of meeting vanilla people who don't have experience and then trying to introduce them to it and i think it's it's an interesting question. And of course, it's not going to have one answer of like how you're going to do it. Sure. And but I think being being sort of honest and open about that from the relative get go, especially the, the the maybe the few things that are really important to you when you're talking to that vanilla person. Yeah, when you're yeah. talking, when you're going out on a date, uh, maybe not the first necessarily, but you know, early on, maybe you can kind of bring that in and see what their reaction would be. If their reaction, initial reaction, is like, "Oh my god, that's awful," you know, you have a work. pee fetish, yeah. like that's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> 
I just went on a date. I had the weirdest date I've ever had in my entire life this Friday. Uh-oh. It was so bizarre. You saying I had the weirdest date is, is going to probably shock the pants yeah, off of it, me. It, it, is, it is saying a, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Anyway, I'm not going to go into yeah. the details of the date, but one of the things <laughs> when, I, when I was saying the reaction uh, kind of reminded me of something that that guy said because we were talking obviously about what I do and I teach teach a class on casual sex and so he was asking about STIs and then he was like well I I I'd never uh, I didn't I never do I take very good care of my of myself I think having sex uh, with with random strangers without protection is disgusting that's nasty with like that face and that oh, tone of judging, voice yeah. yeah and he's like I'm not judging not judging I'm yeah. just like I just think it's disgusting I'm not judging but I'm judging for me yeah <laughs> I'm like yeah. okay okay <laughs> so right if you if your potential future vanilla partner reacts like that to something that you really want in life yeah. a certain kink or fetish that you have then obviously <laughs> that might not be the right person so you want to kind of test out the waters uh, go slow you know people often need some some uh, some process of learning about this getting comfortable meeting other kinky people kind of bringing them into the community you're not going to introduce them in, immediately with all the all the whips and chains and yeah. accoutrements and uh, you know b- needles and <laughs> and uh, whatnot you're going to kind of take it slow okay and i think another thing that that's that comes to mind in terms of uh, dating van- starting to date vanilla people after you've been in the kink community and dated a lot within the kink community is communication the kink community, and we've talked about that yes. with uh, with Dulcinea, yeah. uh, the king doctor, the king doctor yeah. yeah, and and I think there was another episode where we talked about king. There's so much very clear, very explicit communication and negotiation, and negotiation yeah. around scenes, around what we're doing, what we're not doing, where are the limits, where are not, what what are our desires, and vanilla people are often not very used to that level of communicating about sexual things. They often don't have the language, they don't yeah. feel comfortable, and so um, consent. Very often, people in the king community say that when they go out into into the wild, into the vanilla wild, they find that their consent boundaries are are breached in mm. ways that they haven't experienced in a long time in the king community because there's a lot less of that asking and kind of explicit verbal consent, which is very common in the king community. So you kind of have to be aware if you're doing that transition that you might find different ways of, of negotiating consent that are a lot less verbal yeah, and often a lot less explicit even if they're nonverbal, because you can make nonverbal consent still relatively clear and you can take yeah. things slow so that you don't, you don't cross any boundaries. But in the vanilla world, that is not often negotiated very clearly. So you have to either be okay to some extent with that and be good about educating these people about the kinds of ways that you want to or yeah. think you should be better at uh, communicating about these things. You got to think about almost like trading a car. You're going from a sports car to like a Volvo or something <laughs> like that because the speeds are different that you're used to going, right, Dr. Jana? <laughs> I mean, I think if you're talking about specifically sexual communication, yes. Yeah, cool. Yes. Yeah, I just tried to help out on the last <laughs> thank question. You, thank you, thank you. I, I, I saw you running out of gas there, <laughs> so I just wanted to throw a little metaphor in there. So, Dr. Jana, that wraps up sex question palooza number three. Woo-hoo, all nice right. job. You look exhausted. Wow. So this you, is so much work. Is this how our interviewees feel at the end of our interviews? It's possible. I don't know. 
But you did a great job. Right. Congratulations right, for getting man. through it. <laughs> Thank uh, you. I will see you next week right here. Same bad time, same bad channel, right? Yes. And we have Dr. Justin Miller next oh. time back on the show. You remember, Justin? Yes. We, do you remember what we talked about last I time don't, with him? I don't, no. Gay cuckolding. Oh, yes, Cuckolding, right. man. Yes. Come on. Now we're going to talk about sexual fantasies because Ooh. he did this amazing big survey on American sexual fantasies and, and wrote a book about it. And so he's going to come and talk to us about uh, all that research. And in the meantime, uh, you can still continue to send yep. us questions uh, on all of our social media, scienceofsexpodcast.com website, info at scienceofsexpodcast.com is our email and uh, we will do another one of these and some of these questions that we didn't get to some of them were a little longer yeah. and so on I am going to do more YouTube videos and answer these individual questions as YouTube videos so go find Sex Science with Dr. Jana on YouTube as well cool great job Dr. Jana I will see you next time bye, bye. to connect with Dr. Jana and Joe go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at scienceofsexpod and follow us on on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.